Welcome to session 21 of the Bible in a Year commentary. If you started this series on the 1st of January, then today should be the 21st of January. Today we'll be looking at Exodus 13 to 15 and Psalm 21. But so far in Exodus, we've read how the Israelites, descendants of Jacob, grew in number and then were oppressed in Egypt. Amidst this darkness, Moses is born, saved by his mother's quick thinking and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. As a grown man, Moses kills an Egyptian to protect an Israelite and is forced into exile. In the wilderness, he encounters God in the form of a burning bush. Despite his own self-doubt, Moses is chosen to free his people with Aaron as his mouthpiece. Back in Egypt, we read as their demands for freedom are met with intensified oppression. Undeterred, God unleashed a series of plagues, each aimed at debunking an Egyptian deity. From locusts devouring crops to a chilling darkness that undermined the sun god Ra, the plagues escalate in their severity. Yet Pharaoh remained stubborn. We then read how the plagues reached their peak with the Passover. This moment would go on to define the Israelite calendar and shape their culture and history. Following God's instructions, they mark their doorposts with lamb's blood. That night, Yahweh swept through Egypt, sparing the Israelites, but taking the lives of the Egyptian firstborns, including Pharaoh's own son. Broken, Pharaoh finally relents, and the Israelites leave Egypt, not as slaves, but as people laden with wealth, which is where we jump in today with Exodus 13 to 15. Exodus 13 opens with instructions on the firstborn sons. This moment, Israel's freedom from Egypt would be etched in their memory as a nation. So God uses this opportunity to tie some key instructions and rituals to this memory so that they will keep them. Then, recognising that the people are in a fragile state, God makes a point of leading them the long way around to avoid fighting the Philistines. As we've just seen, God is more than powerful enough to defeat the Philistine army. But right now, the people need time to heal and grow in confidence before they start fighting more battles. Moses, being a man of his word and a man of honour, makes a point of keeping the promises his ancestors made to Joseph all those years ago in Genesis 50. He takes the bones of Joseph with them as they leave. And so Israel leave Egypt and they get to the Red Sea. Meanwhile, Pharaoh has changed his mind and chases the people down with his soldiers. The people naturally begin to panic, but God is fully in control and tells Moses to lift up his staff and start walking. At that, the sea splits open. We lose something of the impact of this, but at the time, the sea was considered powerful and mighty. Most of the people around at this time were not strong sailors, and so their sea was to be feared. It was often associated with great sea beasts of chaos. And yet here is God bending the sea to his will. This was a real demonstration of power. And then, to further demonstrate his power, God let the Egyptians in and collapses the sea on the Egyptians while keeping it open for the Israelites. There are various links we can see in this story. The first is a parallel with Genesis 1 verses 6 to 8, when God separated the waters at creation. And then we see similarities with the flood narrative, where God allows the forces of chaos to consume the wickedness and evil in the world. Those that are beings of chaos, children of the serpent, will be consumed by their own chaos. Having safely reached the other side, the Israelites begin to sing songs of praise to God. They're free and God is powerful. They start by celebrating God's victory over the Egyptians. Other than the obscure reference in Jacob's blessing over Dan, Genesis 49 to 18, this is the first time that the Bible mentioned God's salvation. Next, they point out how unique their God is. There is no one like Yahweh. They look at the impact this event is going to have on the other nation. The Israelites do not need to fear the other nations because the other nation are now going to fear 
them. Who wants to attack a people whose gods cast down ten plagues and split open a sea so we can drown an entire army in it? The Israelites then finish with looking forward to a time where God will establish his people. He creates a home for himself where they will live and he will reign forever. This moment sets up a theme of salvation and God's reign throughout the Bible. This theme will be picked up time and time again. And it all harks back to this moment where God led his people out of oppression, defeating their enemies. But despite all this goodness and rejoicing, we immediately see that everything is not yet quite right. The Israelites come to an area where the water is bitter and their first response is to complain. So God takes pity on them this time and makes the water drinkable. But he gives them a warning. They are to remain faithful to him, listening for his voice and following his commands. So let's look at Psalm 21. This psalm is a royal psalm. Royal psalms are psalms that are ever focused on God as a king or on a human king. But this isn't just a royal psalm. The first half is very much a praise psalm, praising God for all of his blessings. And the second half is a trust psalm, declaring confidence that God will deflate his enemies. Really, the main thing that makes this a royal psalm is the fact that it's written from the perspective of a king, though in the third person. This is likely King David, as this psalm is attributed to him. Here is a summary of the structure, but I would recommend checking out the written version of this commentary in the description to see the structure properly for yourself. So we start out in verse 1, the king exalts God. Then in verse 2 to 7, God blesses the king. Then verses 8 to 12, God curses the enemy. And then verse 13, the king exalts God. The king opens by giving all glory to God. Everything he has comes from God. It is God who has given him his desires and blessing him with the position. It's God that has given him his life and victory. No king can claim they are self-made. Each owes all that they have to God and in God find their security. God has blessed the king because he has trusted him. But God punishes those who rebel against him. Elsewhere in the Bible, the wicked are often spoken of as consuming the poor and destroying the innocent. Here, God is the one doing the consuming and the destroying. To use a modern phrase, he is giving them a taste of their own medicine. And so the king ends where he began, exalting God and giving him the glory. In this psalm, we see the power and the authority of God. Even kings submit themselves to him. But we also see how taking the time to praise God for his past and present goodness can give us the confidence to declare his authority over our future. 